Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Global Ethics and Politics. I'm John McMahon, PhD candidate in political theory at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, and one of the hosts of the channel. I'm also a fellow at the Center for Global Ethics and Politics, which sponsors the podcast and is part of the Ralph Bunch Institute at the Graduate Center. This episode, I'm speaking with Thomas G. Weiss, who's Presidential Professor of Political Science at the Graduate Center, University of New York and also Director Emeritus of the Ralph Bunch Institute for International Studies at the Graduate Center, about his new book, Humanitarian Intervention, Ideas in Action, out this month in its third edition from Polity Press. The book draws on Weiss's deep experience in the academic and policymaking side, thinking about humanitarian intervention, to offer both a conceptual exploration of the concept of humanitarian intervention, and also deep analysis of its practice, both historically and in a contemporary setting. The book charts the emergence and development of humanitarian intervention, and especially the way that responsibility to protect emerges an important norm in the late 20th and the 21st centuries. The book also engages the ways that new wars, especially those within states and with a variety of actors, and what Weiss calls the humanitarian identity crisis of many organizations in the world today, affects the prospects in the future for humanitarian intervention. The book quite effectively explores a number of the tensions and contestations that plague the field of humanitarian intervention and the academic and policymaking discourses around it. The book is full of rich empirical work that contributes to a wide number of conceptual and practical debates. I definitely urge all of you to go out and read it. It's a really rewarding experience to read. In the meantime, I hope you enjoy my conversation with Tom. Joining me now is Thomas G. Weiss, who is Presidential Professor of Political Science at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, and also Director Emeritus of the Ralph Bunch Institute for International Studies. He's also the past president of the International Studies Association and received the Distinguished International Organization Scholar Award in 2016. Tom, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Pleasure to be here, John. Good morning. Morning. Um, and so kind of I'm going to ask you the traditional first question on these podcasts, which is, if you could give us a little bit about your own intellectual background and how you came 
to write this particular book. And we should note for the listeners that this is the third edition of Humanitarian Interventions. Maybe if you could also kind of walk us through the changes. Uh, Good question. Um, I began working on the use of military force as a possible remedy to civilian suffering in war zones in the middle of the 1980s. I was persuaded that there was going to be no peace dividend, which is what most people thought there was going to be, uh, that the military uh, would keep uh, its hands on resources from the government. That's proved to be the case more in the United States than in Europe. But nonetheless, the proposition was that there was always going to be a military and perhaps the best thing to do would be to figure out how to do something useful with them from time to time. So I began working uh, at that point. I had been working on UN peacekeeping for a long time. And when I looked at the troops in the field, it seemed to me that one was excess capacity and two, that lots of the things they were doing trying to reunite families, uh, occasionally helping to build roads, uh, delivery of emergency assistance in an acute situation, for instance, in Lebanon, uh, led me to believe that there was an excess capacity. This was at the moment when Gorbachev was having new thinking and the UN suddenly became popular. Uh, It was not so long thereafter that, in fact, Um, in some order, uh, Somalia and Iraq changed the whole equation for the use of outsiders to come to the rescue. And over the years, I uh, continued trying to keep up with this issue. And then in the year 2000, the Canadian government organized something called the International Commission on Intervention and State Sovereignty. Uh, I was asked to uh, be the research director for this uh, international commission. And it was on that basis that the responsibility to protect was hatched by the commission. Uh, I did the research volume that accompanied the commission's short report. And the first edition of this book, uh, which was published in 2007, but basically was finished in 2006, was shortly after the World Summit on the occasion of the UN's uh, 60th anniversary in 2005, at which point the principle, uh, well, some people would say it's not quite a principle, but a norm, an emerging norm of coming to the rescue of human beings caught in the throes of violence uh, using military force came onto the official agenda and was approved by the 150 heads of states and government who showed up. So the first edition of the book sort of told that story from the middle of the 1980s, but really starting in the 1990s through the commission and the agreement by the General Assembly, contested as it was in 2005. So that was the first edition. Now you'd like to know yeah. about the second? Yeah, third. walk us through. I mean, maybe kind of what's changed the most in your thinking on the topic from moving from the first uh, edition to the third edition published this year? Well, the first edition came out when the, the norm was emerging. 
some people would argue that it's still ing emerging. <laughs> um, I would argue that it's moved a little beyond that in the way we think about norms. I'd say that it's now occupies a middle ground in international affairs, that it's the conversation now revolves around it. And even those who dispute the existence or the validity of the norm are obliged to use the vocabulary. What happened between the, um, the first and the second edition was a whole series of conversations within the UN and within governments and within NGOs about the validity of the concept. And I put the book to bed um, at the end of, well, the middle to the end of 2011 in the midst of the Arab Spring. Mm -hmm. And uh, the uh, outside intervention in Libya, uh, and at the time, uh, the hopes that something would happen in Syria. This was all very dicey. And in fact, the third edition uh, revolves around a couple of the questions of, well, why Libya on balance? Was this a sensible or not a sensible proposition? And why not Syria, since the situation is far worse? So in some ways, um, the second edition was a updating, uh, or a updating of a conversation that was occurring by diplomats and others, but no real action had actually taken place. Uh, and then at the end, when I was putting the book to bed, the first real use of military force since Kosovo in 1999 occurred, but obviously uh, the jury was very much still out. In fact, I say it's still very much out today, but the third edition uh, actually was uh, an important uh, step. Um, so this is quite a different book from certainly the first one. I'm not sure there'll be a fourth one. I'm <laughs> getting a little tired of this, but it was important to tell the end or um, the, the, <laughs> the end of the beginning of right. the story. Right. Um, so if we kind of get into the book itself, I think maybe before we dive too deep, it's useful for the listeners if you kind of give us a sense of the distinction between humanitarian intervention and UN peacekeeping, which often, as you note in the book, tend to get muddled in uh, popular discourse, uh, some academic discourses. Well, the traditional UN peacekeeping involved the consent of the parties used minimal use of force uh, and involved what you might call not necessarily League One armies. Uh, in fact, there are still several instances of traditional peacekeeping. Uh, one has been in, for example, Cyprus since 1964, uh, keeping the peace with a handful of soldiers because the parties, in this case, the Turks and the Cypriots, uh, the Turkish Cypriots and the Greek Cypriots, actually like having the, the troops there uh, to keep the two halves of the island apart. And they, with the minimal use of force, they keep parties separated. That humanitarian intervention is quite a different story. This is the use of Chapter 7. Uh, chapter 7 of the UN Charter, which says, come hell or high water, you don't agree, but it's important to use military force. Um, this was designed at the outset to 
overthrow uh, a, a change of an aggression. Uh, so the quintessential uh, example in the post-Cold War era is the first Gulf War. When Iraq occupied Kuwait, the Security Council got together, made a decision that this had to be reversed, and the use of military force reversed that occupation. That's not usually what happens. On occasion, the Security Council also agrees to use military force to come to the rescue of human beings. Um, after the Persian Gulf War, the, the instance in uh, northern Iraq, uh, to come to the, to the rescue of the Kurds, uh, the Security Council decision to use military force to protect human beings and to deliver uh, emergency assistance. That's quite a different story. Now, the third distinction that comes in, which is the responsibility to protect humanitarian intervention, which is the title of the book, I use that because that's been the, the lingo or the language that's been used since the 19th century, which places an emphasis on the rights of outsiders. And anyone familiar with colonial history would understand that outsiders uh, come to the rescue supposedly of insiders uh, for a variety of reasons, some of which have nothing at all to do with uh, humanitarianism. Therefore, um, the term humanitarian intervention really is laden with kind of imperial colonial history, which is why uh, the responsibility to protect is an important for me, and I think for others as well, an important sort of conceptual step forward as well as an actual step forward um, because the emphasis is not on the rights of interveners but on the rights of human beings of victims on the ground uh, and the responsibility of outsiders to come to the rescue obviously uh, there's no obligation uh, which is one of the criticisms that could be made of the responsibility to protect uh, there obviously one should feel embarrassed to be doing nothing, uh, but there's no obligation to do anything. So the responsibility to protect was a, a interesting both conceptual and packaging device to get around the criticisms that had been waged by, um, let's face it, quite simply, the much of the third world that saw humanitarian intervention as did a Trojan horse for Western imperialism. Now, at stake in some of these changes as well, it seems to me, are differing understandings, differing contesting understandings of sovereignty. Mm -hmm. um, could you kind of talk a bit about how humanitarian intervention, but perhaps especially the responsibility to protect, offers a different view of sovereignty, both conceptually and practically? Well, uh, sovereignty is either uh, 370 years old or 370 years young mm. uh, after the Peace of Westphalia. But one thing sovereigns have, according to the definitions in international relations textbooks and also in something called the Convention of Montevideo, which spells out the characteristics of a state, is that there is a defined population, there are borders, uh, there is a government that has the, the, the uh, legitimate use of force um, and it exercises an authority over its, its population. 
there's no mention made of human rights. So traditionally, um, sovereignty meant that a, a state or a government of a particular state could do just what it believed well pleased with its own citizens. It could repress them, it could crush them, it could do as it liked. That was kind of domestic politics. What's happened over time, uh, not only that governments had cons have consented in a variety of ways to give up bits and pieces of sovereignty through trade agreements and airline agreements and postal agreements <laughs> and all kinds of things, but in, the, in the, the very nature of human rights, which have been growing in one way or another uh, since the Second World War, and certainly since the Universal Declaration in 1948, and in particular since the Convention on mm -hmm. the Prevention of Genocide in 1948, is that there has a tension built into international relations, built into the UN Charter, between respecting human rights and respecting sovereignty. Um, and so what has happened, uh, Eleanor Roosevelt had a wonderful image of human rights and the Universal Declaration, which is just a declaration. It's not a treaty. It doesn't commit anybody to doing anything. But uh, willy-nilly, 65 or 70 years later, uh, the Universal Declaration has taken on the character of customary law, and more and more countries have signed on sometimes choosing to ignore it, but when they ignore it, they have to defend themselves. And what's happened in relationship to mass atrocities and the entire debate about humanitarian intervention and now the responsibility to protect is that states have said they're, they're, <laughs> there's kind of a, a limit to what you can do to repressing a population. We're not talking about the garden variety of repression. Mm -hmm. We're talking about mass atrocities. And at least for mass atrocities, when a government is unwilling to protect its own population, is unable to protect its own population, or in fact is the, the, the perpetrator of mass atrocities, the idea is that the definition of sovereignty includes a modicum of respect for human rights. And that if a, if a, if a government is either unable or unwilling uh, to protect its populations, the sovereignty is abrogated, evaporates, disappears temporarily. And at that juncture, the responsibility for protecting those citizens, which is actually the responsibility of the state, since the state is unable or unwilling to do so, that res the responsibility for protecting those individuals falls to the international community of states. And hopefully the Security Council moves to endorse such an action. It obviously doesn't always do so. Now, another aspect of this is, this is something you walk through in the book, is the way that Kofi Annan, his famous piece about two sovereignties, mm -hmm. um, could you maybe tell us some about uh, the particular argument and distinction that he makes and how that's influenced uh, the debate and then the practice? Well, uh, he caught a lot of grief uh, for that piece, uh, which was in a speech at the General Assembly in 1999, but the, the, the week before it was a short piece in The Economist, which essentially said that there are 
sovereigns who have rights and individuals who have rights. And occasionally, not always as we've seen, but occasionally the rights of individuals trump those of sovereigns. And those rights are, in his definition, it's more along or less along the lines of the responsibility to protect that. Um, in dire circumstances, this responsibility be devolves to the international community of states. The reason he caught grief was that uh, this was in 1999. Uh, he starkly posed the, 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 the question related to the intervention in Kosovo by NATO, to, uh, which resulted in, in fact, the, the creation of a state and the, the going flying in the face of uh, Serbia's uh, dictator, Milosevic, who eventually ended up in the dock in The Hague. But the Security Council was unable to make a decision in Kosovo because of vetoes from um, Moscow and Beijing. So the Security Council was unable to act, was not authorized to act, and NATO acted anyway. Five years before, the Security Council was also unable to act, and that situation was Rwanda, uh, and somewhere between 800,000 and a million uh, murdered people later, um, the Security Council was unable to make a decision to do something to halt the genocide. And so this speech, in some ways, used both Rwanda and Kosovo as kind of bookends for the inability of the Security Council to act when it should be acting to protect human beings. This launched a huge debate, and it was in many ways that the, the a response to that debate the following year that, the, that the, the Canadian government, which took the lead in putting together the commission, put some money in it, raised the other money to, to put it together, to kind of square the circle. <laughs> If the Security Council is unable to act or unwilling to act or there's not a political will to act, what happens? And so the, the International Commission on Intervention and State Sovereignty actually was put together to address um, doing virtually nothing or doing too little too late in Rwanda. And some people said doing too much too early in, in, in Kosovo. I still recall that the... Um, Two chairs of the commission, Gareth Evans, a former foreign minister at the time of uh, Australia, and Mohamed Sanoun, a, a senior Algerian diplomat who had, uh, had held a number of government and uh, non-governmental and UN posts, who were the co-chairs, presented the report to Kofi Annan, who said, gosh, I wish I'd thought of that because his framing of two sovereignties confronted the traditional notion head on, whereas the commission found a way of say circumscribing that, 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 that clash um, and made it in some ways more palatable, or at least 
even the most inveterate defenders of traditional state sovereignty had trouble in saying there were no circumstances under which there was not a responsibility to come to the rescue of war victims. It was very difficult after Rwanda, even for Delhi or Beijing to say, gee whiz, no, absolute state sovereignty, we're never going to come to the rescue of individuals. And so those, those two bookends, Rwanda and Kosovo, helped define the debate by the commission. Very helpful. And um, there are a couple of, uh, throughout the book, I think one of the um, really important aspects of it is that you're constantly kind of highlighting and working through various tensions, um, conceptually and practically, with regards to humanitarian intervention and the responsibility to protect. Um, and so in the second chapter of the book, you provide a very broad, very rich um, kind of historical picture of a number of different interventions of various sorts. And you do so in the context of talking about uh, two tensions or two um, kind of changing dynamics in the debate. Um, and that's The first of these is an expansion of what constitutes threats to international peace and security. And the secondly, and second is uh, the set of organizational limitations of the UN to act. Um, now we can never do justice, of course, to all of the cases or to those two issues, um, but maybe you could pick one of the cases that you describe um, and kind of walk us through how it illustrates some of those changing dynamics. Yeah, well, the, the definition of what constitutes a threat to international peace and security we have to go back to the origins of the UN Charter, and I mentioned earlier Chapter 7, which was designed, as we discussed earlier, to, to, to reverse Kuwait taking over, um, sorry, Iraq taking over Kuwait. Um, interstate aggression was what was in everyone's mind, the founder's mind in 1945. So the first... Korean uh, War, when uh, China and the North Koreans took over the South, and there was an international reaction, it was an, another sort of ready-made Chapter 7 operation. Almost everything else that occurred afterwards didn't fit into these neat categories. There was an the invention of peacekeeping to try to do something because nobody could agree to, to, to chapter seven. What happened beginning in the early 1990s with the dire situation in Somalia, with the dire situation in the North and the South of uh, Iraq after the Persian Gulf War, with the situation in the Balkans, was that um, civil war, as opposed to interstate conflict, became basically the <laughs> the common bill of fare uh, for the for the UN, uh, and the notion of not standing on the sidelines uh, at the end of the Cold War, which meant that the Security Council could act when it hadn't been able to really act in such situations during the duration of the Cold War, except to field the cons consent-based peacekeepers. After a couple of these decisions, um, 
it became obvious that it was an interstate war that was being defined as a threat to international peace and security was something else. At the time, the first intervention in Somalia, the fiction was that there really wasn't a state there. There were so many, there was, there was no there there. Uh, and therefore, the Security Council used the word humanitarian 18 times in a resolution on Somalia. And they skirted the issue about the nature of state sovereignty. After the Persian Gulf War, um, there had been an interstate conflict, <laughs> and therefore the aftermath of the interstate conflict was rather swept under the rug, and this was a considered a follow-on to what had gone earlier. But the Balkans, and then eventually Rwanda, made it perfectly clear that civil wars and humanitarian uh, mass atrocities one sort or another, were now not an unusual event, but a common occurrence. Another commission, the one that was founded um, by the Swedish government, uh, which is called the Commission on Global Governance, was meeting more or less at the same time. It, it began, I believe, in 1991 or 1992 and published a report in 1995. And those august commissioners uh, said, we need a charter revision of the United Nations to say that humanitarian emergencies are also a threat to international peace and security, which means that the Security Council can act. Frankly, the way the charter is written, the Security Council has powers of self-definition. If it says it's a threat to international peace and security, it is, ipso facto, a threat to international peace and security. However, the commissioner says, well, instead of fudging this, instead of trying to define away a problem, let's have a charter revision. Well, nothing is more difficult um, than a charter revision of the UN. Um, there in the United States, we've had a few constitutional amendments over the years. To the, the UN, there have only been two, one related to the membership of the Security Council and one related to the membership of ECOSAC. Those are the only changes over 70 years. And so the idea of having a, a charter amendment to say humanitarian emergencies in a civil war constitute a threat to international peace and security seemed really, really far-fetched. The logic was that, well, nothing is local. Arms are coming in from the outside. Refugees go across the border. Economies of the region are disrupted, and therefore it's a threat to international peace and security. All of that was true. By the time the Commission on Global Governance published its report, there had already been so many instances of outside intervention in Somalia, eventually in um, in Bosnia Herzegovina with, with NATO. Uh, Rwanda, what didn't happen and everyone wished had, in Haiti, in Georgia, there were a whole series of instances. And by the time the, the report was published, it was clear that the point was moved, that humanitarian emergencies were considered a threat to international peace and security. So this evolution over time is an important one. No one discusses any longer uh, whether the Security Council can act. In fact, virtually everything the Security Council is dealing with at, at present, whether it's 
South Sudan or Darfur or the Central African Republic or Mali or Iraq or Afghanistan, oh yeah, the list goes on, are a huge, huge component of the concern, a huge component of what the UN and others are trying to do is, is come to the rescue of human beings. So that, that's one of the huge changes over time. And this involves not only the Chapter 7 uh, use of military force itself, but also the Chapter 7 use of sanctions and the Chapter 7 use of international judicial uh, pursuit. During the same period of time, sanctions have been levied against countries and non-state actors involved in humanitarian atrocities. And the creation of temporary tribunals, one in the former Yugoslavia, one in Rwanda, and then after that, the International uh, Criminal Court. Uh, these all involve non-consensual, obviously, um, actions against sovereign authorities. So that is the story of the 1990s and one that actually continues today. Now, something that's in that response um, that's very important throughout the book is this idea of new wars or changing conditions of wars. And so I'm, you know, you talked about how that kind of provokes a certain amount of reconsideration of practices. Um, but it also poses a set of challenges to humanitarian intervention. Um, what are some of those challenges? Well, or maybe first, kind of, what do you mean by the term new wars well, that you use in the book? <laughs> The term new wars was created uh, or used first uh, uh, in the year 2001 by Mary Calder. Um, here we are, uh, 16 year, 15, 16 years later. And you know, how long does the term <laughs> new actually apply? In fact, my seminar uh, uh, this afternoon, or tomorrow, sorry, uh, will <laughs> revolve around this issue. It's clear that the kinds of disintegration, the kinds of, of, of intense asymmetrical wars that we've seen uh, over the last uh, 15 or 20 years are not exactly the kind of war that Clausewitz looked at. They, they involve, uh, in particular, non-state parties. Uh, and while there have been civil wars, now this is virtually the, the entire war business, our civil wars. Not only have we seen civil wars, uh, there have traditionally been an armed opposition and a government, that's kind of a civil war, but now the, the number of parties involved, depending how you're counting in Somalia, in the case we discussed earlier, there were 14 or 18 main ones. In Syria at present, there are probably a hundred mm -hmm. uh, groups. So it's a little difficult to design a negotiating table <laughs> for a hundred parties plus the government. So the numbers of parties, um, that certainly seems new. The emphasis on civilian as a part of a war strategy. And we know that, you know, um, the U.S. Civil War involved lots of civilian uh, tragedies and, and deaths, et cetera, et cetera. But now civilians have become one of the main objectives of a strategy so that 
people dressed up in regular uniforms confronting each other. Another aspect of this is the 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 nature of financing for wars. Uh, governments used to levy taxes uh, occasionally. We still do, although <laughs> we're not always. Um, but there was a, a revenue stream to finance armies. Um, now, uh, if you control a particular commodity, it could be a part of it. In Angola, it was oil. It wasn't necessarily only controlled by the government. You have, we all know about conflict diamonds. We know timber. There are a whole series, Coltran, and it goes on and on. So that uh, one student who was studying the Congo uh, asked one of the uh, belligerents in uh, the eastern Congo uh, what it took to uh, wage war. And he basically said, oh, about $10,000 and a cell phone. That sort of suggests that this is not the, the kind of conflict that many people have in their mind as they watch John Wayne in World War II. Um, and the, the final thing is that the nature of the people who come to the rescue, we've just seen in a huge proliferation in the numbers and kinds and resources available to um, humanitarians. So you put all of those together and you have something that were called new wars. Um, each of those elements, you could say, well, we've seen it before. Mm -hmm. We haven't quite seen it in the same way. And when you put them all together simultaneously, whether you want to call it a new war, it certainly is not the kind of thing that one has in mind most of the time uh, in reading a textbook uh, about war. So the current generation of wars, if you don't want to call them new, represents a peculiar challenge to outsiders coming to the rescue. And tied in with that, and another kind of challenge is what you call in the fifth chapter to the book, um, kind of a humanitarian identity crisis that mm -hmm. takes um, a number of forms. Um, and part of that identity crisis is the changing nature and also the number of humanitarian organizations. Mm -hmm. Could you maybe walk us through how that shift kind of interacts with this current generation of yeah. wars? Well, so let's take, assume for the moment that, that what's going on in Syria is, is very difficult. Mm -hmm. You've got, a, got various parts of the country under the control of the government or one armed opposition or another. Uh, you've got refugees in all of the surrounding countries, uh, Lebanon, uh, Jordan, uh, Iraq, Turkey, and you've got people inside Syria displaced, even if they haven't left the countries. In mm -hmm. some ways, probably the people inside Syria are worse off than the refugees who are trying to come in rubber rafts to Europe. So this is the, the nature of what humanitarians are trying to deal with. In the, this particular conflict, there is no outside military force, um, which we have uh, in the Sudan or Central Africa or Mali. Um, and the coming together of civilians and humanitarians is one peculiar kind of problem. But it's really just the nature of trying to come to the rescue in very insecure situations when your staff is under 
incredible danger and incredible pressure. When the the resources available have uh, gone from the beginning of the Cold War, post-Cold War period, from about $800 million to about $25 billion. So we're talking about something that's not a trivial business Mm -hmm. in which uh, the numbers of agencies, the number of UN agencies hasn't increased, really. We still have the major players of UNICEF, UNHCR and WFP, but the rest of the UN system, which didn't used to be involved in humanitarian operations, are all now moving in this direction because that's where resources are. And we have a proliferation of NGOs, um, everything from the major ones like CARE or Oxfam or the International Rescue Committee to mom and pop operations of Know, three people from a church in Cleveland who mm-hmm. want to show up and do something useful. So this entire mixture of of both increasing numbers with increasing resources in very insecure situations, sometimes with military protection, sometimes without it, creates a situation in which humanitarians their job was never easy. Let's not <laughs> let's not say that this was a, a, a thing that most people would sign up with their lacquer to do, but there were lots of people who did. But humanitarians used to be able to count upon their symbols, the UN flag or the, 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 the Red Cross, to indicate that we are good guys and we're here to help people, whoever they are, wherever they're located, and that actually is no longer the case. Humanitarians are frequently the targets. Mm-hmm. They're very good targets because they get very dramatic effect when <laughs> they're killed. Uh, and so that particular mixture has made it difficult for humanitarians to apply the principles that they've always applied beginning with the creation of the International Committee of the Red Cross um, in 1864, the idea was that independence, neutrality, and impartiality always characterized uh, what humanitarians uh, did. Those were what you signed on to as a humanitarian. They have lots of other principles, but those are the three that come to the fore, along with, obviously, humanity, the respect for human life and dignity. The problem is, over time, now that either you're not acting in an independent, neutral, uh, impartial way because you are getting resources from the occupier in Afghanistan, or you're getting resources from uh, a, a donor that only wants you to t- aid women or only uh, aid people on this side of the border or in this part of the country or in this region or this ethnic group, um, means that you're compromised in various ways. And even if you insist upon untied resources and that you can operate wherever you want, et cetera, et cetera. You are no longer perceived as being um, part of the solution. You're perceived as being part of the problem and that humanitarians and humanitarian assistance and humanitarian protection are now 
seen as part of a battle strategy. So if I aid your side, I'm benefiting your war machine, not the opposition's war machine. So what has happened, there is a kind of an identity crisis in the sense that humanitarians um, used to have uh, a little card which they carried and says, I'm independent, partial, neutral, and people respected it. That's no longer the case. In fact, in one of the saddest um, illustrations of this, the 22 UN officials who were killed in the bombing of the um, UN headquarters in Baghdad in 2003. There were a couple of friends of mine, not only on the UN staff, there were also um, outside some researchers doing the kind of thing that I used to do. I'm getting, I no longer bounce around on Jeeps. I'm a little tired for that. Um, but one of them was killed. Another, uh, who still teaches at Oxford, lost three limbs. Uh, and he was sitting outside the office of the head of the UN mission waiting to interview him to talk about the nature of the problems. After that, Gil Losher, who is the, uh, the man in question, um, who has written the authoritative volume on UNHCR, he and I worked together on several committees. Uh, he's the really a leading voice in this field. After this horrible event, uh, he wrote an op-ed in the Times, which basically, sadly in my view, basically tried to say that humanitarians are and should be independent, impartial, <laughs> neutral. And his proof was that they had dropped leaflets in English, in uh, Arabic, and in local languages in Iraq. The obvious question is, well, if you have to drop leaflets in three or four languages to populations in Iraq, uh, it suggests that uh, no matter what you're doing, no matter what you claim to be doing, there are lots of people who contest what you're up to. And that was the sad end of that story. So there is an identity crisis with many humanitarians claiming the need to go back and be absolutely independent, absolutely impartial, absolutely neutral. And others who are saying, listen, this, this terrain is so different. We can't be apolitical. We take resources from certain people to do certain things. You have to learn to deal with the politics. You have to learn to deal with the compromises. You have to deal with the perceptions. And so this debate continues uh, with probably the most famous uh, illustration being David Reif, who at the beginning of the 1990s with his mother, who happened to be Susan Sontag, argued strenuously for intervention in Somalia, in Iraq, in the Balkans. And if we fast forward, he's now calling for uh, a return to traditional principles because uh, war is war. Let's face it, it's ugly. And uh, there are no easy solutions. And at least humanitarians have to come to the rescue. They shouldn't aim to do more. 
fact, they should aim to do considerably less. So that's why there is an identity crisis of major proportions amongst humanitarians. Yeah, and it's helpful that you kind of highlight um, Reef there at the end, because you do talk about in the book, even kind of the question of whether military intervention is helpful or hurtful is at the central of some of these crises, identity crises. And maybe um, we're running out of time, but you've mentioned it a couple of times. I was perhaps to conclude, you could expand a bit on how what it is you're covering in this book helps us to think through Syria today. Because one of the points the book ends about rhetoric to to reality. Um, And this is, you know, a book that's designed to to help us think through these concrete issues going on around us. Well, I think it's important in thinking about the year uh, 2011, which is the Arab Spring. It was this decision to intervene in um, Libya. Obama drew his red line and then didn't follow up in Syria. So you have three instances in which um, military force could have or should have been used to come to the rescue of individuals. Libya, in which military force was used, and uh, one looking at the situation on the ground now, you'd have to say it um, didn't exactly serve its purpose. But the purpose actually was to come to the rescue of individuals and to protect them from a repressive regime. It did that. The problem in Libya is that there was no follow-on. There was no... It's the opposite of Kosovo, where, in fact, there was an intervention. The humanitarian situation in Kosovo actually became worse right after the, 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 the NATO intervention. But in relatively swift order, uh, over the next couple of years, there was a massive outside effort to um, rebuild the country, to provide stability with the use of a large number of boots on the ground, to provide assistance to try to help the judiciary and the government get it back on its feet, and to provide breathing room. None of those things occurred in Libya, except for bombing from Twenty-five or thirty-five thousand feet, and so it's it's hard to separate out the intervention from the from the aftermath of the intervention. But there really nothing went on. The opposite end of the spectrum, actually, nothing has gone on in Syria. Um, as I said, the red line was drawn. Um, <laughs> Cameron <laughs> pulled out. He asked the British um, Parliament, who came back from. Uh, vacation. Uh, and the decision that that uh, France, Britain, and the United States would do something against the use of chemical weapons and what was going on in 2011 in Syria evaporated. The situation in Syria, there is no easy solution. The military force is not a panacea. But what could have happened, I think, in the middle of 2011 uh, is totally impossible now. And in between those two situations, was the Ivory Coast, which prefers to be called Cote d'Ivoire, it's French name, in which a UN presence, which had been on the ground um, and hadn't a military presence, which hadn't been really activated, was kind of a, a tr- more traditional peacekeeping force, was there as the, um, the uh, government, which was lost an election, decided not to look at the, not to respect the results of the 
began a civil war, which had actually been incipient for some time, um, pursued the um, the armed militia that was supporting the person who had won, and in, in essence created hundreds of thousands of refugees, ruined an economy, and killed a number of people. Finally, mainly the French, which was part of the UN force, used military force to overthrow the the former president, now dictator, Gbagbo. Uh, he ended up in the Hague. Uh, on trial, and the person who had won the election was installed. There's been a modest disarmament. The, the economy is certainly not bounced back totally, but it's bounced back somewhat. So in the year 2011-12, you have three instances um, that show uh, there are no miracle recipes, but if resource, if there's a military capacity, there's a political will, um, and resources applied, one can make a difference. It's not guaranteed for sure. Uh, and uh, But the question is worth asking. What to do in Syria at present? It, you know, I'm beside myself, uh, you know, in this somewhere between three and 500,000 people of a population of 21 million, somewhere with probably four to five million refugees and double that number of internally displaced. You've got a, a country that is totally, totally dismantled. I don't, I really, I can't even dream up what we can do besides probably making sure that people who are there are don't die. That the parts of the country will be government controlled or rebel controlled. Um, that employment in the region, uh, investments in Lebanon, uh, in Jordan, in Turkey, in order to help refugees who are temporarily there and at least with some hope of eventually moving back or at least staying in the region. But this is not exactly, it doesn't exactly warm idealist heart to talk about dealing with this. But once again, 2016 is very different from 2011. And I think things that would have been possible earlier are now simply no longer uh, anywhere near anyone's drawing board. Thank you. Now, there's um, a lot of things we didn't get a chance to cover that are in the book. Is there anything in particular you want to bring to our listeners' attention? Other than, of course, I mean, this is really a rich book um, with you know, important things. And inexpensive. Great. <laughs> so I was going to just urge our, our listeners to, to seek it out. Um, is there anything you want to bring to their attention before we part? No, I think that the the um, these issues are, you know, it is... The issue for the day, as I said, that over the course of not exactly the, the, the last part of my my career uh, for the last uh, twenty five years, this is this issue has become front and center. It was one that was on on the margins. It was one that virtually no foundations or governments or think tanks or universities or anybody else was interested in. Uh, it, there now is a cottage industry. Including uh, my own publications, 
Uh, it's an issue that's not going to disappear, alas, uh, and it's one that we need to get our minds wrapped around. So if people would like to read about at least part of the issues, I'd be happy to uh, subscribe their books. Mm-hmm. Subscribe their books. All right, Tom Weiss, thank you so much for joining us Thanks, on John. New Books in Global Ethics and Politics. Terrific.